We'll continue in our study where we left off the last time. The last couple of weeks we looked at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at the beginning, the birth of the church, when we saw some things that were taking place on that day that were unique to that day and never will be repeated as far as we can tell. But it is a special thing to reflect on in this present hour of how God miraculously began the work as the song that we sang earlier this morning, He who has begun a good work in you is faithful to complete it. And He did begin that work almost 2,000 years ago, and He is continuing that work to this present hour. So we here in this place are privileged to be participants in the work that Christ is doing in the world through us by His Spirit. That's a wonderful thing to remember to make note of on a regular basis. And it requires really some kind of commitment on our part that we should be used by the Lord in these last days. And it requires that we be filled with His Holy Spirit. And over and over again, we will see as we continue through this book of Acts that that's precisely what that early church depended upon. The constant refilling of the Holy Spirit among them. And it is... Needful as well for us today, just as it was for them in that day. But chapter 3 begins to reveal to us how the Spirit works through the lives of the believer. And Peter is the really primary focus, example to us, as we read through these first several chapters of the book of Acts. He is going to be central in all of the activity that Luke, the author of this book, presents to us. So it's important to understand, Peter, although he denied Jesus, remember, before the cross, he was absolutely blown away by the things that Jesus had done, but yet when it came time for him to stand, he failed. But God, in His great mercy, forgave him and brought him back into fellowship with Himself. That's grace. That's what God does for everyone who may end up falling into that same kind of predicament where we have the opportunity to defend what we believe, to proclaim God's truth and the work that He has done in our lives, but we fail to do so. And we may feel guilty about that. We may feel like, well, we failed so often, how can God forgive me? Well, He does. He just simply does. You need to go to Him and you need to seek His power in your life to be refilled. And He will do so. He'll never leave you or forsake you. Peter gives us a great example of how we should be in our effort to do the will of God in whatever we might be doing. And he, in this passage that we'll be looking at today, presents to us some characteristics that I want us to focus on as we proceed in our study in this great book. At the end of chapter 2, we found that there were 3,000 souls who had just come to the Lord. What a great, amazing outpouring of the Holy Spirit that so many would come to the Lord from one sermon. That's quite a record, Peter. I don't know that anybody has ever gotten any better than this. Billy Graham perhaps may have attracted a lot of people to the Lord in his ministry. 
And it may very well be because he actually did speak to hundreds of thousands of people at a time that he might have had 3,000 converts. But the book of Acts records this one so that we can know that the Spirit of God does indeed move on the hearts of men. It is the Spirit of God who draws all men to himself. But he never takes credit for what he does. The Spirit of God always does what is needed to be done to point everyone to Jesus Christ, not to himself. And so it's something that we need to be very mindful of as we go through this Word of God that we are looking at today. None of us, not even the Spirit of God, takes credit for anything that is done by us, through us, in us. And that's one of the things that we'll be seeing this morning as we move forward. Verse 1 of chapter 3 begins with this marvelous information. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Now the first thing I want to point out to you in terms of what I mentioned earlier about characteristics that we're going to focus on is this characteristic of this man of God who was a man of prayer. Remember back at the end of chapter 2, we saw in verse 30, or rather 42, they, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. Prayer was a very central part of Peter's life. And all of the apostles, all of the disciples in that day were people of God that were committed to prayer. In chapter 6 of this book, we'll find that, again, verse 4, Peter saying, we will give ourselves continually to what? Prayer and the ministry of the Word. Peter was a man of prayer. And it was important that we understand that is a characteristic that we all should be emulating. We all should be following after that great man of faith in this way, that we should be committed to prayer. And I know we have in our church a prayer team, and that's wonderful. We do have people who constantly pray for those requests that come through, uh, and we post it on our website, and people are responsive to that, and I'm so grateful for the prayer ministry that we have. I'm grateful for the women who meet uh, on a weekly basis, the men who meet at the Lighthouse Building before the service. I'm grateful for people who come together to pray. We offer prayer at the end of every service, and I invite you to remember this is an important aspect of who we are. We need to pray to our Lord for whatever the need might be. And listen, we have needs And it may be uncomfortable for us to come forward at a time when the pastor says, come forward for prayer and and let us pray with you. And, And it may be something that you might be not really feeling very comfortable in doing. But I recommend that all of us need to get over that and just be willing to say yes to God. I need your help, Lord. Admit it. And then do something about it. That's what prayer is for. Prayer is for the purpose of bringing our petitions to Him. Our prayers, our supplications, requests that we make on behalf of ourselves or for others. Our intercessory prayer, especially intercessory prayer, praying for those around us, whether it's the lost that we know personally, or whether it's family members that we are desiring to see come to the Lord, or whether it's for healing or for some other purpose. Pray. 
Pray without ceasing, Paul says. In everything, give thanks. That's another form of prayer, giving thanks to the Lord. Praising the Lord is a very, very important aspect of prayer. If you go through the Psalms, so much of what you see in the Psalms is praise unto our God. And I love reading the Psalms to learn how to pray in every situation that I'm dealing with, because I know I can find in the Psalms some place where I will be led by the Spirit of God to understand how I am to approach a particular need in my own life. So I encourage prayer is important, daily prayer. Pray without ceasing is really hard to do. Or maybe it's not. Does it mean that we should be on our knees 24-7? No, it does not mean that. But it means that in every situation that we face, there's absolutely nothing wrong with communicating to your God, I'm about to enter into this particular aspect of or event, and I want your help, Lord. I want you to guide me. Simple prayer. Nothing really difficult about that. But we should make it a commitment. We should make it an ordinary way of living that we always turn to Him for guidance. His Spirit gives us that guidance. That's one of the reasons why His Spirit is here. He is our guide. He is our instructor. He is our comforter. We need to depend on the Spirit of God much more than we do. And we sing the song, More love, more power, more of you. That's something we should always be saying and thinking and believing because we do need more of Him. He doesn't need more of you, but you need more of Him. Peter was a man of prayer. And he went into the temple at the hour of prayer. In this particular case, it was three in the afternoon. There were three times when Jews in that day went to the temple to pray. One was nine o'clock in the morning, a second time was noontime, and a third time was three in the afternoon. This is, according to Luke, the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. In Jewish reckoning, that day starts at 6 a.m., so this is a three o'clock afternoon prayer, and that's significant because we will see in chapter four that that plays into the, the uh, information that Luke is giving to us in this passage. But they went to the temple. The temple was a part of their worship. In the last verse of chapter 2, again, verse 46 says, continuing daily with one accord in the temple. The temple was central to Jewish worship. They had the synagogue, they had the temple, they had houses that they go, go to for fellowship. But the temple was a place where they could meet with God still. Now keep in mind, yes, they were believers in Jesus Christ. But they didn't think of themselves as anything other than a Jewish sect. They never really became separated from Judaism until much later, after the Gentiles began to grow in the church and they began to become more a distance from the customs of Jewry. But Peter and John made it their custom to go into the house of God for prayer. Whether it's the temple of God in Jerusalem or whether it's a church building like this, make it your purpose to go to the Lord in prayer, in the house of God. Collectively, we can do so. We can do it individually. We don't have to be on our knees to pray. 
We don't have to be lying prostrate on the ground to pray. We can be driving our car and pray. Just don't close your eyes. But listen, we need to pray. And again, this is our example. Peter and John going into the temple for the one purpose, the sole purpose of praying unto their God. So they're entering into the temple. And it says in verse 2, And a certain man lame from his mother's womb was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. This man was lame from his mother's womb, never had been able to walk. We sort of addressed that a little bit the last time we were here, but I want to emphasize this man has no understanding of how to use those feet and ankles that are so badly crippled. They are atrophied beyond help, beyond hope. This man cannot stand. He cannot do what everybody normally would be able to do. He never was able to walk around the block. He was never able to run with his friends. He was never able to play jump rope or do anything with his feet. They took him to the temple to beg for money. That's what this really is saying. Asking for alms is, help me. I cannot support myself. I need you who are able to, to give me the resources I need to live because I can't do it on my own. And there were many like that in that day, and there are today. But the point of this is, this man had been daily brought to the temple at this particular gate. And Luke calls it the beautiful gate. Now, we're not exactly sure which gate that was, but based on the context of what he gives, we can pretty much conclusively say, without much difficulty, and perhaps without error, that this was what they knew as the Nicator gate, which was the gate that separated the court of the Gentiles, the outer court, from an inner court, which was known as the court of the women. When you enter the temple grounds, you enter into the court of the Gentiles. It's a very large court. The Gentiles could go into that court, and they could observe what was going on within the temple grounds. But they could not go through that Nicator gate into the court of women. Because if they did, they were risking their lives. So that's the gate, we believe, was the gate that was that location that was spoken of here in this story. But he was there daily. It was the most common entrance into the court of the women, the Israelite women. And there were two other gates as well, but that one was the central gate. That was the larger of the gates. That's why it's believed, because Luke calls it the beautiful gate, that it was indeed that one gate. The great gate, some 75 feet high, ornate, made of bronze, very, very beautifully carved bronze work of art. This is the gate, we believe. And again, he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, and he was asking for alms, and when he fixed his eyes on him, Peter said with John, Look at us. 
I submit to you that it's very, very likely that Peter and John walked by this man on a regular basis every time they went into the temple. Why this particular time was Peter's attention drawn to this individual? And even more than that, it's quite likely that Jesus went in through that same gate whenever he came into the temple to teach. Did he not see that man lying there? After all, we know that Jesus healed so many. Why didn't he heal that one? Well, it begs the question, and I believe it's a good question, Lord, why did you skip him? What was the purpose of his not being able to get the healing that he would have so gladly received? Because there was a purpose in the plan of God, the timing of God. And that brings to mind something that's very important to me, I hope it is to you, that whenever we ask God for something, do you understand that God wants to give you good gifts? He will give far more exceedingly abundantly beyond our asking. But sometimes when we ask, we don't seem to get what we're asking for, even though we know it's the will of God. Lord, it's in Your Word. you said this. Why isn't this happening? What is going on? But you have to realize, He hasn't said no, necessarily, although He may. But if He hasn't given you a no, clearly from His Word or through prayer or through other means that He can communicate that, perhaps the answer is, not yet. You see, it's God's timing, not my timing, that we need to trust in. I can't trust in my own ability to bring about anything, but I can trust in God's ability to do so. And I can trust in God's willingness to do so in His time and in His way. I believe this man was still crippled because God wanted this work to be done on this particular day, and today was the day for him to receive his ability to walk. So when Peter says, look on us, that probably indicated to the man that this guy that's coming by, that's standing before me now, wants to give me a gift. And so he's probably very, very excited about the fact that somebody's going to help him out financially to make it so that he can continue another day in this terrible condition nonetheless. So he gave him his attention, he says in verse 5, expecting to receive something from them. And then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Hallelujah! That's not what this man was expecting. But when he heard the name Jesus, the Christ of Nazareth, he knew he was talking about the Savior of all. He knew that he was talking about the one who had proclaimed himself to be the Messiah. He knew he was talking about the one who had been crucified. And some people had been talking, and he would have heard it, there's been a resurrection from the dead, and that Jesus is now alive. And some 3,000 people came to faith just the other day. We don't know how long after this, or that event rather, that this event is taking place. But we do know that this man had to have been aware of some of those things, at least. And he must have been very much aware of who Jesus was. And when Peter says, in that name, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. I think money meant a whole lot less to him 
at that moment in time than it ever had. Because now he's hearing something for the first time that gives him hope. Take note of what Peter is saying. What I have, I give to you. What is it that Peter had? Peter had faith. I believe that the gifts of the Spirit are here in operation through the Apostle Peter. At least a couple of them. I believe that perhaps the gift of knowledge was a gift that the Spirit of God gave to Peter to single that man out at that particular time. And I'm convinced that perhaps the Lord said to Peter, Now, this is the one. I'm reminded a couple of weeks ago, we had something going on in our church service while I was preaching, and an individual in the church really felt a very strong urge to go outside to make a phone call. But she didn't want to disrupt the service, but she said, Now, Lord? And she heard, Yes, now. Well, so she got up and she went outside. And as she was going outside, she noticed something that was pretty, very, very actually unusual. There was a truck that was sort of parked in the middle of the parking lot. Don't know why, but that truck was there and she thought, well, I wonder why they did that. Well, she continued on to make her phone call. And as she was beginning that process, she noticed that the truck had moved. Well, there's nobody in the driver's seat, but the truck had moved. It was on an incline, and it was in a position so that if it had continued on that path, it would have gone out onto the busy Route 1, probably causing a major accident. She saw it move a second or third time, and then she realized, I've got to do something about it. She goes out to that truck and puts the emergency brake on, and fortunately, Stop the progress of that truck. If she hadn't been listening to God at that moment in time, that truck would have been a major problem for somebody, especially the owner. And I suggested after that fact to the owner that perhaps you ought to start using your emergency brake from now on. But that's God. God speaks and the attentive listener responds. Peter was an attentive listener to God. He was a man of prayer. He was a man of faith. We'll talk about that later on. But here, now he's saying, okay, you've got my attention, God. He looks at this man, and the Lord appears to tell him what he is to do. Reach out and lift him up and proclaim in the name of Jesus that he is to rise up and walk. That takes a lot of guts. I don't know about you, but I don't know how I would respond to such a command from God if there were somebody here who was in a wheelchair and the Lord, I thought, perhaps spoke to me and said, all right, now's the time. Go to that person and do the same thing that Peter did back 2,000 years ago. And I would think, no, that was just the pizza that I ate. You know, I I don't know. I, I just don't know that I've got that kind of faith. I would hope that I would have that kind of faith. It's never happened to me, so I can't really tell you whether I truly would or not. I would like to think that if the time ever came where God deliberately wanted me to do something in that way, that He would give me the faith. He would give you the faith to do it if you are a child of God. I believe that's true. 
I believe in miracles. I believe that the Lord still does miracles today. I believe in healing. I believe the Lord does heal today. I believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I believe the Spirit of God does move in such ways as this today. Peter was a man of faith. He trusted in what Christ had done. And through him, he believed that Christ would do again that which he had been doing all the time that he was on the earth, walking with his friends for those three and a half years, healing the sick, raising the dead, making the blind to be able to see, the lame to walk, the deaf to hear, casting out demons. Remember, Peter had actually done some of that earlier on. When Jesus had sent his disciples out two by two to the various communities in the Galilean region, he stayed behind and they all went and they were performing those same signs and wonders throughout the Galilean region. They came back to Jesus and said, Oh, wow, you should have seen what we were doing out there. The people were amazed at what happened because we prayed for them and they were healed of their diseases. The blind were able to see. The lame were able to walk. Just like with you, Jesus. Remember Jesus' response? He said, Don't be joyful over the fact that they were healed. Rejoice instead that your names are written in the book of life. What Jesus was saying is, all of that miraculous stuff, oh, that's wonderful, yes, but it's not what's most important. What's most important is your relationship with your Savior. Peter knew that. So as a man of faith, he knew that Jesus was speaking through him to raise this man up and he would heal him. And so in verse 7 it says, And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. Now Luke is a physician. And the words that he uses here in this particular phrase where his feet and his ankle bones receive strength is a medical term. And it's not used anywhere else in the Word of God. So keep in mind, Luke is the only one who would have expressed it in this fashion. But what the reality of this is, is that that man was immediately healed. Take note of that. Again in verse 7 it says, And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. It wasn't just simply that he was cured and he was able to, over time, be able to regain the strength in his ankles and his feet and his leg muscles and all the nerve endings that had to be re-taught how to respond to the various things that would need to be done in order for the feet to function properly. It happened immediately. That's pretty quick, isn't it? Immediate. That's God. Can't be explained in any other way. That's God. So it says in verse 8, So he, the lame man, who is now no longer lame, it says he leaped up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. Do you think he was excited? I'd say so. This man, we'll find out later in our study, was over 40 years old. He had been a cripple all his life and now he's just able immediately to stand on his two feet and not only to stand, but to walk and to jump. And he was blown away by all of this. Wouldn't you be? I would be. I am now. I'm excited about the fact that I can do any of those things still. 
But this man could never have done any of that until that moment in time when Peter said, rise up and walk. What an amazing miracle this is. And unfortunately, it didn't get noticed by anybody. Isn't that sad? Now, if that were the end of the story, we could go out of here and say, so what? But listen, it's not the end of the story. Because look at what takes place immediately following that event. It says in verse 10, Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Who are they that he's talking about? All the people who were gathered at the temple at the time of prayer. It was a very busy time in the temple. Multitudes of Jews would come to the temple at that hour to pray. The place was full. And listen, they caught on really quickly. They saw what had taken place because that man was well recognized by everyone who was around. That's the man who was lame at the temple gate. And now he's able to do this. What is going on? Kind of reminding me of that which took place on the very first day of the church. When the people saw what was going on, they were asking, what does this mean? Now they're saying, in much the same way, in much the same kind of wonderment, how in the world did this happen? Perfect opportunity for Peter. Take note again, he's a man of prayer. Secondly, he's a man of faith. And now we find out something more about, and very important indeed, of his character. He's a man of humility. Verse 11 says, Now as a lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. And so when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we made this man to walk? That's humble. He could have taken credit for it. Look what I did. And you know, unfortunately, there are men and women in our present age who do take credit for somebody getting healed. I'm a faith healer because that person was healed under my ministry. And they get puffed up about it. And they begin a ministry. They write books. They become very popular. They have healing ministries all over the country. And they make a lot of money. That's very, very unfortunate. It's very, very wrong. It's evil. But Peter is here saying, no, I'm not responsible for this. It wasn't by my power. You have to understand, Peter is saying, I want no credit for this. That's humility. That's not putting yourself more highly than you ought in relation to your God. Peter knew where he stood. He was a servant of Jesus Christ. A bond slave. Greek word, doulos. It means one who is obligated to do the will of his Lord. Jesus had talked about servanthood many times. And he talked about the fact that as a servant, no servant should ever take credit for something they do because what they do is the Lord's will, not their own. They're just obeying their Lord, their Master. That's what a servant should do. So a servant can't take credit for doing what the Lord, his master, had asked of him. So it is with Peter. He'll not take credit for this. Don't you ever think that any one of us should ever take credit for something that God does through us. 
It's always God who does the work by the power of His Holy Spirit. And sometimes He does things when we're not even aware of it. I know that. It's happened in my own experience. And I'm so grateful for the fact that God would indeed use me or anybody else. But it's never, ever going to resound to my glory. It always will redound to His glory. So should it be for all of us. Verse 13 says, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when He was determined to let Him go. Now Peter gets into this message that he is bringing, and it's much like the first message. It's a message first of condemnation. You guys are responsible for the death of my Savior. And I want you to understand that cannot be disputed. Peter's here arguing that they were responsible for his death, even though Pilate really did want to let Jesus go. But they would have none of it. We have no king but Caesar. Finally, Pilate condescended, and he washed his hands of the blood of this man, symbolically. That doesn't mean that Pilate was born again. We don't know all of what took place with regard to Pilate, except for the fact that John tells us that after that day, Pilate and Herod became friends. That's a pretty good indicator that Pilate was kind of just saying, that's their religion, not mine. But remember when Pilate stood before Jesus, or Jesus stood before Pilate, I should say, and he asked Jesus, are you a king? And Jesus answered, says, You've said it. And in his communicating the fact that he was king, he also said that his kingdom was not of this world. But if it was of this world, that would be bad news for Pilate or everybody else. His kingdom was not of this world. Jesus went on to say that he was the author of truth. Pilate's response to that statement, what is truth? Let me tell you what truth is, friends. We have it in our hands. It's absolute truth. It cannot be refuted. It will not be changed. It's absolute the world may not agree with that. They're going to have to talk to Jesus about that. And they will have to. But here, Peter is saying to this Jewish crowd, you killed him. You delivered him. You denied him in the presence of Pilate. And he calls him the Holy One. That's a deific title. And the just, and ask for a murderer to be granted to you. That's Barabbas. That's boldness. So he's a man of prayer, he's a man of faith, he's a man of humility, and he's a man of boldness. Now that boldness comes from one source, the Holy Spirit of God. He's what made the difference in Peter's life. You do know that. Again, I go back to before Christ was on the cross, Peter denied Jesus. Even though he said, though they all believe you, I will never forsake you, he did. 
But things have changed. Even after the resurrection, before Jesus revealed Himself to them, they were all hiding for fear of being captured. That plays into our story as we move forward into chapter 4, which we may not get to unless you want to stay here for another couple hours. But we'll get to it, Lord willing. He had boldness, and that boldness came from one source, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to speak boldly to those who do not believe. We need that kind of boldness, friends. And we can ask for it, and He will deliver it for us. He will give you that boldness. That's part of what we know of as being filled with the Spirit of God. He gives us boldness for service to our King. Peter was a man of boldness. And he goes on to say in verse 15, And you killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. You killed the Prince of Life. We talked about that again last week. The Jews did indeed kill Jesus. The Romans did indeed kill Jesus. I did indeed kill Jesus. I was just as responsible for it as anyone, and so were you. All are responsible for His death. But His death was God's perfect plan. It was no surprise to the Father. It was always that which God had intended. That's why God raised Him from the dead. In affirmation of that which He had accomplished on the cross, when Jesus said at the cross, at the very last of His time on that cross, saying, It is finished. The work was complete. That which He had been sent to this earth to do was done. Sealed. Completely finished. Tetelestai in the Greek. Paid in full. That's what He said. And I believe it. But you also remember when Jesus was on the cross, He said something else. Though they were guilty, though the Romans were guilty, though you and I were guilty, what did He say to the Father while He was hanging on on that cross? He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And that is something that Peter now is going to remind the Jews who are listening. In verse 16, And His name, through faith in His name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through Him has given Him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. It's Jesus who did the healing. It's Jesus who accomplished the miracle. He goes on to say, Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, He says in verse 17, as did also your rulers. You were ignorant, just like them. And remember, again, Jesus said on the cross, Lord, forgive them. For they do not know what they do. They were ignorant of what was happening. They didn't understand. But another thing that Jesus said on the cross, in the Aramaic tongue, He cried out to God, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22. Open their eyes, Lord, and let them see that psalm in its Wonderful, glorious perfection in showing the cross. And it is a psalm that does just that. Even on his time on the cross, at the moment that he was about to die, he gave them opportunity to check it out through his word. Peter, James, John, all the other disciples followed Jesus all of those years. 
And He taught them. He gave them much instruction. But one of the things that I believe He did for them, above all else, was He gave them a hunger for His Word. Peter already demonstrated that in his first sermon, where he quoted Joel, the Old Testament prophet, regarding the things that they had just been witnessing. He was using the Bible as the basis for that which was being seen by all. And I submitted to you then, I submit to you again, that is the precedent that we must follow when we are making any kind of presentation with regard to the things of God, we must base what we say upon what the Word of God says and nothing more. And that's what Peter does. He does it with great boldness. He's a man of prayer. He's a man of faith. He's a man of humility. He is bold in his statements that he is making. But he's also a man of the Word of God. He says in verse 18, But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all His prophets, that the Christ would suffer, He is thus fulfilled. Repent therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send Jesus Christ, who has been preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all His holy prophets since the world began, Now here comes what he now is declaring among the people. The Word of God. He uses the Word of God to prove what he has just spoken. This must be the pattern that we all follow. Be a man, a woman of the Word. Study God's Word, know God's Word, and be able to say truth when you present the Gospel to others who don't know the truth. They will ask you, what is truth? Just like Pilate did. But you've got an answer to that. You've got this truth. The absolute truth of God. Let God be true and every man a liar, the Bible tells us. Well, here Peter is saying, look, you guys intended this because you didn't understand. You were ignorant. But he sent Jesus Christ for this one purpose. He was preached to you for this one purpose. He is now seated at the right hand of the Lord, the God of heaven, for one purpose. All of these things are true until the time of restoration comes upon us. That is a reference to the last days. That's a reference to the fact that Jesus is coming back. That's another story. We've already looked at that several weeks ago in our study of First and Second Thessalonians, but I want you to be reminded the Lord will return to this earth. He's returning first for His church. Paul tells us that there is a fulfillment that must take place. The fullness of the Gentiles must first come in. While the church is here on this earth, that's our goal, to bring in that last one who is going to complete that fullness, and then we're out of here. I'm glad to know that that is what the Word of God proclaims. And I proclaim it still. I do not back from that particular expectation that my God will do what He has said. Jesus will return. He will come for His church and take us to be with Himself. And there will be also a seven-year period of tribulation that will take place, such as no man has ever known before. 
And after that seven years of tribulation, there will be a time of peace. A thousand year reign of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, seated upon David's throne in Jerusalem, worshipped by all men. And we'll be there with Him, judging the people as His royal priesthood, a holy priesthood, a royal nation, perfected in glorified bodies. I can't wait for this. Well, I have to wait. But I don't want to wait. But in the meantime, while it is still day, while there is still light, and there's precious little light these days, but there still is light, let it be known that we are going to shine that light as brightly as we are able to. And if you are in the same place that I believe we should be in this matter of shining the light, then people will begin to take notice. And I believe that there's a work that still needs to be done. So redeem the time, Paul tells us, and make use of that which God provides so that we can enter into fellowship together in that place that He has prepared for us, knowing that we've done our job and that we've done it well. Heaven must receive Him until the time of restoration of all things, he says, which God has spoken by the mouth of all His holy prophets since the world began. All the prophets spoke of that which is yet to come. Peter's reminding them. Now he goes into specifics. He says in verse 22, For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. He's talking about Jesus. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. There's judgment to come for those who are Christ rejectors. Yes, he says in verse 24, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken have also foretold these days. So there's plenty of evidence in the Old Testament Scriptures of that which has already taken place and that which is yet to come. The prophets foretold. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 1 of the book of Hebrews that God has spoken in these last days through His Son, Jesus Christ. But in times past, He spoke through His prophets. His prophets anticipated the fulfillment of everything that they wrote. They didn't understand all of it. They didn't have a clue as to when all of these would happen, but they trusted that the Lord was speaking through them about these things, and they obediently wrote them down for all to read and believe. Peter was one of those who believed the Old Testament prophets. Are you? I know I am. When Isaiah said that there would be a suffering servant, it came to pass. When Zechariah said, that there would be one who would come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, a foal of a donkey. I believe it was going to come to pass, and it did. All of the things that were spoken of on his first arrival, over 300 prophetic statements, absolutely, perfectly fulfilled. True perfection is what I mean by this. No way to misconstrue to misrepresent. It happened just as it was said. No way to spiritualize, no need to spiritualize all of those things that are yet to happen. Take them literally. 
just as they were literal in that first coming, so they too will be literally fulfilled at His second coming. Peter's telling the people, look, He was the fulfillment of all of what the prophets had spoken. And it says in verse 23, It shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall utterly be destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and all those who follow, as many as, as have spoken, have also foretold these days. These days in which we are now living. After the resurrection of Christ. These days. These are the last days. They began at the first day that the birth of the church took place until now. He says in verse 25, You are the sons of the prophets. They had a heritage. They were descendants of Abraham. They were part of the family. But genealogy doesn't make it. It has nothing to do with genealogy. It has to do with only faith in what God has done through His Son, Jesus Christ. Their heritage, their lineage did not give them entrance into the kingdom. But their lineage was something that they could be very, very pleased to know about and to observe the wonderful things that God did through His own people, the Jews. Not that they should be proud about those things, because they did not do a very good job with the Word of God. But they should be very, very pleased to know God recognized them as His people. And He does still recognize them as His people today. So you are the sons, He says, of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, to the Jews, He says, God, having raised up His servant Jesus, sent Him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Powerful statement. We're all by sin, by nature, sinners, sinful people. Try to repeat that again. We're all by nature sinners. There's nothing that we can do to avoid that fact. Every one of us has sinned. The only thing that we can do about that is not attend church. It's not going to be effective in just simply taking communion to wash away your sins. That has nothing to do with it. It isn't in paying tithes to your church. It isn't in your relationship with Abraham if you are a Jew. It has nothing to do with your birthright. It only has to do with your second birth. That's why Jesus said, you must be born again. Who did he say that to? He said that to Nicodemus, one of the great religious leaders of that day. Imagine, this Pharisee, who was respected by all the Jews, who was a very devout Jew, believing in the commands of God, studying the Word of God extensively all the days of his life, this young prophet comes in and says, you've got to be born again. So what was Nicodemus' response? How can that be? What are you talking about? You've got to be born again. Am I to enter my mother's womb a second time? He had no idea. Jesus had to correct him. Are you a teacher in Israel and you don't understand? He who is born again 
is born of the Spirit, not of the flesh. There's a spiritual birth that Jesus was conveying to this man. This happened before he went to the cross. He was telling this Jewish leader, there's coming a day when God is going to do something so wonderful, so beyond your understanding, but yet it was already revealed in the Word of God. And you, Nicodemus, should have been able to have seen that in the reading of Jeremiah the prophet, who said, I am going to bring a new covenant, a different way. A covenant means a contractual arrangement. And God said in that precious Old Testament book of Jeremiah, that covenant will be not ratified by Moses, who was a man, but it will be ratified by God. He says, I will put in you, I will do it, Not you. I will put in you a new heart to replace the old. And my law will be in your new heart. It won't be something that you'll have to intellectually understand. It will be in you. That takes the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what He's done for all of us who believe. The moment we accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior... The moment we confessed our sins to Him, knowing that we needed to do what? We needed to repent. Just like Peter has said here for the second time, you must repent and turn from your current path and go in a 180 degree different direction and receive Christ in all that He has done because He has done all that you need. There is no other way, Peter will say later, There's no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. Peter said, you've got to repent. Do that, my friends, if you have not already. And the times of refreshing that he spoke of here will be available to you as well as to all who have already done so. I suggest to you that if you do not know Jesus Christ now, The Bible says, today is the day of salvation. Don't delay. 